Blog Talk Radio. of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and I have people here in the chat room saying they're hearing sound before the music ends. Let me ask you, how is everything sounding to you today? How's it sounding? I've got the new setup going here. And so I want to hear what you guys are hearing. Obviously, I have a cold. So discount the fact that I have a cold and let me know how the sound is otherwise, other than my cold. Anybody there? I'm waiting for somebody to type a comment in the chat room. Can you hear me? Okay. Let me type into the chat room. Let me see over here. Okay. Okay, people are hearing. Good, good, good. Okay, finally, some people are chiming in. I think it's probably a uh, an issue of the commons. Yeah, I do sound like I have a cold. Anything else? A little gravelly. Yes, I've got the cold. Okay, you can hear me well. Good. In my ear, it sounds a little bit different than normal. Maybe I've got my volume my headset volume turned up just a little too high. I was having a little pre-show dance party, so that could have been it. So, yeah, so here I am today. Today is supposed to be day without a woman or something, right? But here I am. I'm a woman. I'm doing my show, and I'm doing my show even though I have a cold. And if you go over to the blog at don'tletitgo.com, you'll see that not only am I doing a show, I am doing – I would say a kick-ass show. Um, Am I allowed to say that? I hope I'm allowed to say that. Check out the program notes. The program notes are quite extensive for today's show. So this is one of the shows in which I'm going to just be plying you with a lot of material. So not only as a woman am I here with a cold working on supposedly the day without a woman strike, but I'm really showing up. I'm showing up for you guys. So anyway. Excellent. Um, Title from today's show, and I'm going to explain it in a little bit, is this. Is it time for day without the mind? Is it time for day without the mind? And this is an actual thing that I'm thinking about getting you guys involved in, and we will talk about that as I get to it. But if you go to the program notes at don'tletitgo.com, you'll see that, of course, the very first story is why women 
are on strike today. That's the article headline from New York Times. It's a little bit of an opinion piece. As I said, if you check out all those program notes and there's something that you find you want to chime in on, you can chime in over here at the chat room at Blog Talk Radio like many of you are right now, or you can call in. And the number at which to do so is 760-888-5817. Uh, Jay, is it time for a day without the mind? And then um, just Jean chimes in. She says, don't we already have that most days? I have something very special in mind with respect to it. So we'll take a look at that. But as I said, don't let it go.com. There's a program notes. We're going to check out this New York Times piece, why women are on strike. And I think it'll help explain a little more why I'm not on strike today. If you actually look at a couple excerpts from that article, I I went ahead and put a public post out on Facebook. You're welcome to share it if you want, but there were a couple passages that I think are very important. And any woman out there who thinks, yeah, you know, we can have common cause with this strike because after all, there are some women's issues out there. That is not what this is about. Um, That is not what this is about. What is today's strike about? Here is a quotation from the New York Times opinion piece. Quote from a spokesperson for this movement, Ms. Bhattacharya, I think is how you would pronounce it, Bhattacharya? Bhattacharya, I'm sure I'm fumbling that, I'm sorry if I am. She says, the language of feminism in recent years has been used to talk about lean-in feminism. Continuing, she says, We do not want a world where women become CEOs. We want a world where there are no CEOs and wealth is redistributed equally, end quote. This, she explains, is why they decided to convey their new international feminist movement around the socialist philosophy of feminism for the 99%. Okay, so for many women, this so-called strike is not about treating women fairly, which I'm all for, treat women fairly. If you want to make a cultural statement about how important it is to treat women fairly and kindly, I'm fine with that. And I'm going to make some of those statements today myself. By the way, you guys who who decide you're going to listen and not hear anything at all about women being treated unfairly, you're going to hear something about women being treated unfairly. But I have a perspective on this issue that comes from the basic principle of individual rights. So there, I will separate my cultural commentary from my political commentary. This woman does not. And in fact, she's just using this issue. I don't even know if she cares about women. She just cares about, a, you know, an excuse to impose socialism. She doesn't want women to become CEOs. She says, we want no CEOs. We want wealth to be redistributed equally, she says. So it's about socialism for women like her. Then what about the focus in the United States? Surely not in the United States. We don't focus on this. So the United States strike will focus on, quote, broadening the definition of violence against women. This is according to Sarah Leonard, who is the spokesperson for the strike here in the United States. Continuing, it says, in addition to protesting domestic, sexual, and physical violence against women, and I say these are all good things, 
a woman, a member of the strikes organizing committee, and that's this uh, Bhattacharya woman. She says that the strike on Wednesday focuses on rejecting the quote systemic violence of an economic system that is rapidly leaving women behind. There's violence in an economic system that is rapidly leaving women behind. So what are they doing here? They are failing to distinguish between, on the one hand, actual initiation of force against women, which still happens here in the United States sometimes as well, but in some countries in the world, it is extremely prevalent in some cultures of the world, particularly those dominated by Islam, it is extremely prevalent to have violence against women. The Quran condones violence against women. Okay, violence against women, actual physical force against women is, of course, wrong. But what this woman is doing is she is failing to distinguish actual initiation of force from freedom of association, just choosing, for example, not to hire a woman. If a man wants to not hire a woman or pay a woman less for sexist reasons, he's wrong. We should condemn him. But he is perfectly within his rights to do that. And so government has no role in a situation where there is no violence. As I wrote in my post, asking government to act when there has been no initiation of force is asking government to initiate force against peaceful people. These women, the ones who are in this protest, They need to realize that there are only two ways to deal with people, force or persuasion. And what they are doing is advocating the former force over the latter persuasion, insofar as they decide they want government to, quote, do something in the absence of an actual violation of their rights. Um, This call for redistribution, you do not have a right to the product of somebody else's labor. I don't know, you know why in the 21st century People need to be educated about this, but apparently they do. So this is not about treating women fairly, either as a statement of rights. And, you know, if if government's involved, the thing that we're concerned about is that government treat everyone equally, that government does not treat people differently on the basis of race or sex or other characteristics that are irrelevant. All human beings should be treated equally by government. That's true. Uh, But if we want to make a cultural statement about how some people in our culture are choosing to treat women badly, that's fine. But that's not what this day is about. This day is about, for this woman, she just baldly calls for it. Why not just call for socialism today? She's probably emboldened by the fact that she's reacting to Donald Trump. And yes, there's a lot to complain about with Donald Trump, but that does not excuse a call for socialism. And I'm sorry, women, you could be mad about Donald Trump. You can even be scared that Donald Trump might do something to affect your abortion rights. And there are politicians in this country, particularly in Texas, who are actively trying to take away our rights to birth control, um, our rights to choose an abortion. If, you know, horrors of horrors, we decide we have to do that. Who wants an abortion, right? But you would want to have the right to choose it in certain situations. I talked about a story in which they're trying to have this law in Texas that is going to protect doctors if they choose to lie 
to pregnant patients about whether the fetus they're carrying is deformed. Because if they think the woman might want to have an abortion, if, for example, it's a Down syndrome fetus, they don't want to tell the woman the truth because they don't want to help her make that decision. Uh, There should never be a protection in the law of a doctor lying to a patient about anything certainly not about this that's going to make a woman a slave for life. So there are real dangers, but these real dangers do not excuse a woman who is in effect calling for socialism. This woman, Bhattacharya, I should learn to pronounce her name properly. She doesn't want women to be CEOs. She doesn't want them to be successful. She wants socialism. That's what this day is about. It's about asking government to do things apart from rights violations. Uh, I've got a call. I'm going to go ahead and grab it. If cool with you. I think this is Debbie. Hi, is this Debbie? Hi, Amy. And you can hear me okay over the new setup, right? I've got this cold. Oh, so I, it's a, it's, I feel like it's not a Mills method of difference, right? And Mills method of difference, you're supposed to change only one factor when asking people to determine what the result is. But I've changed two on things. I've got I've got this cold and I've got the new system. But I think I think it's working well. How are you doing? Well, good. Uh, you know, life is frequently too complicated to do a controlled experiment while yeah. in action. <laughs> you know, um, you sound fine. I I hadn't really noticed one way or the other. Um, but yeah, I mean, you sound fine to me. I didn't realize you had a cold. I didn't notice that, so I don't know whatever that data point means. <laughs> but, uh, um, yeah, this is the this is a, an issue that's really kind of um, hits home for me because I, I think I see as someone who has, I believe, suffered professionally on account of being a woman in a male-dominated industry. I mm-hmm. see women like this as the enemy. Because she is represents everything about what made me just discard any kind of advocacy for women as some kind of socialist, like evil collectivist nonsense, and ignored it. In um, and I think that it's a huge turnoff for people in general, and causes them to 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 put push back against some legitimate social calls for. Um, better treatment of women like and in my case mostly I'm thinking of it in the professional context uh, of women wanting them to be able to be CEOs rather than to abolish the idea to 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 not have any CEOs I don't know how that would work I guess we just have one dictator running the whole government and everybody else would be um, you just you just run every company as a democracy you know it's majority rule everybody just votes right that's probably what it would be Wow, that sounds like an absolute disaster. <laughs> or like the Starns and Atlas Shrugged, right? You have your supposedly benevolent oligarchs running it on the, you know, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. Yeah, um, that's, yeah, that's just appalling. And if this is associated with, like, Actually, you mentioned Lean In, and I and I recently finished reading that book. And there's a part where Sheryl Sandberg talks about, with sort of perplexity, about how she was always reluctant to refer to herself as a feminist, and she still mm-hmm. kind of bristles at it. And she's 
um, sort of tried to come around to, to try and just get okay with referring to herself that way. And I wonder if that isn't just part of because she's an, she's a rational, success-oriented person, and maybe on some level she kind of was picking up on this just really ugly side of feminism that causes a, a, an, a rational and um, pro-success person to be uh, reluctant to think of themselves as a feminist. I couldn't bring myself to call myself that. In some senses, maybe in a cultural, non-force-initiating way, I might think, you know, share some some leanings with with people like Sheryl Sandberg, but not with not with the feminist movement. And and another thing about um, trying to in, in introduce the initiation of force, even if you were not going to attack business businesses as a whole, but just to say that that women need to somehow be promoted on a in a way that's proportional to men and somehow legally mandate it things like that those things have the absolute opposite effect of what their intent purports to be because it this affirmative action number one it codifies into law that women cannot advance without some kind of coercive uh, backing from the government and it also creates an enormous amount of anger and resentment yes. towards women. And yes. it discredits the legitimate accomplishments of women because people can point well, to this affirmative action and say, you, right. you didn't really do, earn that. Right. And then recently I was writing a piece on racism and, you know, affirmative action on the basis of race is a similar situation. And if you think about this, right, there's been a lot of writing about people being in this optimal flow state with respect to their work. If you throw somebody into a job that they're actually not appropriately qualified for because you've been pressured to because of government, you're not doing that person any favors because a person is going to thrive best when there is the optimal level of challenge. So it's something that's a reach for you, but if it is, you know, truly out of your grasp, then you're not going to be in a flow state. You're going to struggle. You're going to feel inadequate. It's all going to be self-defeating. It's not going to be a good experience. Um, so that's, that's definitely true. There's a whole book about that called The Mismatch Effect. And this book is talking about it in the context of race, but I see it as the same exact issue regardless of whether it's uh, racial minorities or whether it's women. Yeah, or any minority for that matter. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Well, we're not a minority, <laughs> which is the weird part about it. But, you know, I mean, in some fields, though, though in some fields we are. E- yes, yes, absolutely. Like in my field mm-hmm. in engineering, mm-hmm. very much so. And part of the thing is that makes it, I think, that people get kind of pulled down that path of wanting to encourage mandates, I mean, just aside from an, a, a wrong understanding of the nature of government, is the fact that there is this very real thing of implicit bias, where people are just not aware of the fact that they have different attitudes towards women and versus men, so that there are very capable women who are not getting promoted into these jobs. And it wouldn't be a matter of someone being in over her head it would be a matter of her being at that level where it, she's best suited and not in a job she's overqualified for. And, right. and that's a real thing 
But I think that yeah. if, as long as those implicit attitudes exist, they're going to only be reinforced as long as they're stigmatized because you run up yeah. against cognitive dissonance. So, like, there's a it, nobody wants to have to confront this idea that I'm a good person and then that runs up against I've been discriminating systematically uh, against people or uh, I earn my success versus I've had some unfair advantages over this whole other group of people. And, and so I think destigmatizing it is a really big part and just saying like, if you have this bias, and by the way, I've found it in myself too. If you have this, it's just something that you've absorbed from whatever and you're not responsible for something that you don't hold as a conscious conviction and if you identify it and take measures to correct it, then you're doing something good. Instead of shaming people and making it sound like there's some sort of hostility directing this attitude, which in most cases there's not. No, no. I mean, you know, the thing that's better to do, of course, is to educate people. Just make people aware that this exists and do studies and publish the results. And then also let people feel the true economic consequences of simply acting on this unconscious bias without consciously questioning it or trying to fight it. Right. Um, let them, <laughs> mm-hmm. let, let the market decide um, a, a few things, Debbie. So first of all, I don't know if you saw, there's this article. Uh, I just put it from Huffington post. And I didn't even really look at it. I mean, I've heard this from a number of sources. I just want to give people a little reference there, but there are a number of schools around the country today that have closed, down because of this day without a woman strike and you know uh, one thing that people have said which is kind of obvious is that there are a number of working women who have been inconvenienced at the very least because of schools closing because of other women who have decided that they're going to make this point by striking so that's horrible they are actually affecting their fellow women it's like they're you know, actually forcing those women to not go to work because they're not educating the children. Uh, And then, you know, think about this. And this is going to tie in later to the, you know, day without the mind thing that I have in mind. Isn't it more effective if those women would go to work, but simply use the particular day to highlight their contributions to the workplace? Right. So, you know, if the whole idea was that there is this cultural issue that, yes, in some realms and in some companies and stuff, there are women who are being being discriminated against, maybe because of this unconscious bias, you know, that you've talked about, whatever. Isn't it good just to go there and just say, okay, well, this is a day, you know, and, and people think it's all corny and stuff, but, you know, you wear a little ribbon and it's just supposed to get people to think on a particular day about a particular issue that's worth thinking about. So, you know, look, women bring something valuable to the workplace. In some workplaces, women are treated unfairly. Maybe everybody could just take a day to think about whether they have this unconscious bias. And if they do make a standing order to, you know, to their subconscious to fight it right? To act rationally Mm -hmm. towards women regardless. And I would say that the objective is achieved a lot more by going and trying to educate people, asking people sort of the thought experiment. Because I I was thinking today, um, or as I was thinking this yesterday, actually, 
suppose there's women air traffic controllers and stuff. Our plane's going to start crashing. Uh, if we actually had a oh. real day without the mind where everybody who used their brain on their job went on strike, all kinds of people would die and planes would crash and horrible stuff would happen, right? So instead, if we're going to do this kind of a one-day protest thing, call attention, use it as a point of education. You know, Benjamin Franklin, he would, uh, you know, he was trying to get himself to practice certain virtues more consistently. And so he would rotate, and I think, I can't remember if it was weeks or months or whatever, but it would be a certain week or a certain month, and he'd focus on his practice of a particular virtue. I don't think that these days, you know, let's think about a certain particular issue on a certain day, or let's honor our presidents and think about the value that our presidents have been on President's Day, or think about Martin Luther King on Martin Luther King's Day. I don't think these days are just worthless, you know, window dressing. I think there's a value, but how, you know, do you use the day? What is the day really for? And as I said, you know, this strike is clearly trying to promote socialism. It's not anything about the welfare of women. I would say that the welfare of women is pro, is um, promoted far more if these schools had stayed open. Uh, you know, you don't necessarily want your kid to be indoctrinated, but if all schools were private and, you know, the private school that you enrolled your kid in said, hey, on this day, we're going to, you know, tell your kids about the valuable contribution that some women in, in history have made or whatever. And we're going to highlight the mm-hmm. fact that in some, you know, in some companies there is discrimination against women and, and things like that. I, I wouldn't do this to young kids. I do it to older kids, right. Who could actually understand this, maybe not till high school age or something, but isn't a lot more achieved by keeping these things open and just educating people. That's my point there. Um, Certainly, I'm, so, I'm sorry. I'm being I'm being a little long-winded. <laughs> What'd you say? Especially in the case of teachers, because they're in a position to explain things to kids and present it to them in a way that you know their minds are still open and they haven't had a lifetime of like building up resentments and and uh, being tending to be in denial about these things. They're just kids, and so they're much probably much more open to hearing right. about these things. Uh, yeah, I mean, kind of you know, maybe maybe a very maybe a very young child would just hear about some historical contributions of really cool women or something, <clears> and and, it, and just leave it at that. I'd leave it to an expert in pedagogy to say, okay, when is it appropriate to actually sort of bring in the cultural and or the political issues? You know, women had to fight for the right to vote and things like this, right? Um, yeah. At, at a certain yeah, point, there's like, that. Just tell them tell them about some like do a lesson about one particular woman, like maybe a brilliant philosopher who emigrated from Soviet Russia uh, and then came to America in the 20th century and, you know, how she's one of the greatest philosophers who ever lived and, you know, talking about Ayn Rand or just maybe with younger kids, it would just have to be something more concrete bound, like just an invention that, uh, you know, Ada Lovelace's contribution to the uh, development of programmable computers. Um, for instance, or something like that's a little bit more concrete bound that a kid could understand better than a philosopher. But yeah, just like tell them, tell them something about that from a historical perspective and leave the politics out and right. kind of give them that, that idea. No, definitely. Um, you know, and as I said, 
experts in pedagogy could figure out what's appropriate at different ages. If it was a private school, they could tell you that on International Women's Day, they're going to do this. They might also talk about how women in Islamic cultures are treated horribly. Uh, A couple more things I was going to say. You talked about Sheryl Sandberg and how uh, she felt uncomfortable calling herself a feminist. Tammy Mm -hmm. Bruce has also had this mixed relationship with the feminist movement. In fact, you know, she used to be the head of now and then left. And then Haley Mary, whom I've spoke to a couple times, the lead singer of Jezebel's, has had this kind of uncomfortable tension with calling herself a feminist. And she's tried to explain that when I've spoken Mm -hmm. with her. She, you know, she, for example, was not for having Hillary Clinton as president because she thought that that would set women back as opposed to help. And so I think there's a number of women who are more rational about this. And of course, if any of them are listening, that's the type of woman that I'd be appealing to again, you know, what is a government's place and what are these women calling for? If these women are calling for government to use force against people who have not initiated force, then they are calling for government to use force instead of persuasion. They're on the side of brutality and Nobody who's in favor of individual rights should be abiding by that. I'm fine with educating, you know, education and persuasion. That is how you deal with human beings. You don't deal with them by violence. Now, um, in terms of some real kick-ass feminists, how about the French feminists? And you've heard me talk about them on the show before. It's funny because I was going to put a link to the one story that I've linked to before, which was a number of the French feminists, they went out and they protest topless on the Champs-Élysées. They were protesting ISIS, right? Because ISIS, they are, you know, they think they stand for the Islamic state or whatever. They're trying to vie for leadership in the Islamic world. Uh, They're very brutal against women. There's been countless stories about this. And these French feminists go out there on the Champs-Élysées and they protest against these horrible, horrible men and say, forget you, we're not going to be intimidated. Wonderful. Um, the one, and, but oh, the thing I was going to tell you is I tried to put the link to that. And when I went to the Breitbart story where that was, there's no photo there. I don't know if the photo got taken down out of some kind of weird censorship or something, but it's bizarre. So what oh. I put instead is another thing that these feminists did and there's a little video you can even watch there was a muslim conference and these women um, they went they stormed the stage at a muslim conference and they were topless again and they wrote they wrote on themselves hopefully in something that's easily washed off but it's very black uh they wrote in french i am my own prophet (laughs) Oh, wow. That's, so they that's are cool. protesting a an ideology that today in the 21st century is serving as an actual oppression, you know, vehicle for oppression of women, which is Islam. They mm-hmm. know, they know, these French feminists know who the true enemy is. It is not, you know, your enemy is not your average employer who may have some unconscious bias. That person is somebody who could be spoken with. That person is not mm-hmm. somebody who's using violence against women. But these cultures that use violence against women, uh, you know, and, and uh, that actually explicitly condone it, it's in their holy book, and people are still observing it. 
that's the the real danger. So, of course, I could join. I could get involved in that sort of feminist movement. Could you? Um, I don't know if I'd quite be comfortable. <laughs> I don't know how if I could quite get comfortable walking around topless <laughs> myself. Um, that just really uh, would be a way outside my comfort zone. <laughs> I even 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 if you're uh, you're protesting ISIS along with a whole bunch of other women. Uh, I'd have to really uh, work my work up the courage for that. I'm not uh, saying I wouldn't have to work but, up the courage to do it. I'm just saying at least it would be a noble cause, and you'd feel like, okay, yeah. if I could work up the courage, this would be worthwhile. Maybe I could draw a little Muhammad stick figure on myself. <laughs> so, so it's both a drawing of Muhammad and and a a, a woman being uh, revealing herself in public. <laughs> there you go. I think that would be it. That would be very good. Um, so, Debbie, I don't know if you – do you want to talk about my idea of this little strike that I have in mind, the day without the mind? Do you want to stay on and talk about that? Yeah, I'd be interested to hear what that is, what that your idea consists of. Yeah, now, now, obviously, you know, this is plot spoilers for people who haven't read Atlas Shrugged, but the whole idea of Atlas Shrugged, is the issue of the mind on strike. Now, a lot of people have said that, you know, when do we know that it's time and should we all shrug and go on strike? And it occurred to me because of this day that these women are doing, well, couldn't you just have a day without the mind? And, you know, obviously if you aren't planning to make, you know, all of civilization crash in a single day, you're not going to actually withdraw the mind suddenly on one day from every place of employment and everywhere else, right? The planes are going to be crashing. All the doctors are going to be killing patients instead of doing proper operations, right? I mean, it's a disaster, but could you not do some sort of a day without the mind as a thought experiment, as a tool for education? So I was thinking we could do it September 2nd, right? September 2nd is Atlas Shrug Day. And what if you called it a day without the mind, not because you actually plan to withdraw, but you actually plan to go out on that day and educate people as to what would happen if the mind was withdrawn from society as it exists today? Mm-hmm. Could that, could, you know, could that be a day worth promoting and, you know, educating people as opposed to, you know, going full on strike because everyone says, oh, we'll go on strike. You know, is it time to go on strike yet? Is it time to go on strike yet? You might start to feel like it's close based on some of the other stories that I'm going to talk about today here pretty quickly. But, you know, one thing you could do is have a day where it's heavily publicized, whether you, you know, you really call attention to the issue and you say, okay, well, you know, that's a novel and, People completely withdrew from society in that novel, but maybe either because it's too soon or maybe because that's a novel and this is real life, that what we want to do instead is a version of that where you have this day where the purpose of the day is to call attention. And I guess people could wear, you could wear a pin, you know, Atlas holding up the globe dollar or sign. something or the dollar sign. Hey, you know, and that's the thing I was, um, I was changing all of my, images that I was using, like my cover page on Facebook and things like that. I was, I was using uh, my cover photo also on Twitter 
to my dollar sign necklace that I wear. And it seems to have really grabbed a lot of people. So certainly, yes, a dollar sign could work. Uh, I happen to be a fan of the kind of modest, small dollar sign that I wear around my neck. Some people like to wear them really big. Uh, there's the gangsta guys who like to wear the big, big ones on the chain. Yeah, that's and what stuff. I was going to say. People think you're a rapper if you put a really big one. <laughs> Mine is very small. People can see the scale of it, you know, when they see. I love this thing. I just happen to get it as a hand-me-down. But um, it's perfect. I mean, it's just perfect. I have no idea who made it or how if it was custom people asked. I don't know. But I just know that I, I love it. And it'd be nice if you know, people could have something of a, a modest size and yeah, they could just wear it. And people who are not really outspoken, maybe you could just wear the pin. And then if somebody approached you and said, Hey, why are you wearing that today? Then you could explain today is a day. It's called the day without the mind, you know, and asking people to consider what would happen. Because if you think about it, almost every productive job in the country requires the use of independent thought and imagine if that was withdrawn from society that was really the point in atlas shrugged in addition to the idea that force cannot make somebody think Um, so production requires thought force cannot make somebody think and so the fact that our government is more and more initiating force against us means that it is destroying productive ability. It is destroying uh, our ability to promote our own lives, pursue our own happiness, even stay alive at the barest level in some cases. So that's, Mm -hmm. you know, kind kind of my my point there. It it could be an interesting thing to do. A day for the mind, says Craig in the chat room. I mean, this is, you know, this is a brainstorming, right? We've got September 2nd is a long way off. And I would say that, you know, there's different ways that we could put it, you know, a a day with, you know, day without a woman was the thing that made me think of day without a mind. But if we want to put a day for the mind, considering it, and we could ask them to consider as one thing, what would happen if the mind was withdrawn? There's a lot of ways that we could go with this, but maybe I'll start a group on Facebook and we can figure out how to make this an actual movement. I would I think enjoy doing that. You can not, you know, you you can have sort of a thought experiment strike as opposed to an actual strike. I don't know if it would have the same effect. Um, you know, obviously, well, actually withdrawing have. would have the same, would, you know, would have a more profound effect. Even 9-11 didn't have the effect that I thought it would have on people's thought process about the danger of Islam, for example, right? So it's hard to know what effect no. things would have. Yeah, yeah I, I think that the, what you're describing would be more effective than going on strike because of the fact that I don't think there would be sufficient numbers to make a loud statement by going on strike. There's so many people who are very act, have very active minds and just who are not, um, wouldn't, necessarily associate with objectivism i mean maybe they would but maybe they just they like ayn rand but they're not like actually really regarding themselves as objectivists or i just i think that the numbers wouldn't be sufficient to to have quite as much of an impact at least as of now but um but whereas 
your idea of that sort of thought experiment, those who do participate could kind of make it more clear what the idea is that's involved in this day and what the agenda is of it and you what know, it's and, about. And we, we are kind of just brainstorming now, but I was just thinking also about the value for the participant him or herself, right? So I would, you know, at first I was thinking, well, would you educate other people about the role of the mind in human life if you did a day like this, right? You know, could you call their attention to the fact that the mind plays an indispensable role in all the things that people value and that government is initiating force against the producers and destroying that value every single day, right? I, w- I was thinking about educating others about this, educate others about this. But what about also the reinforcement that the producer gets for himself, right? Thinking, mm-hmm. you know, look at, the, look at the valuable thing that I provide and where in my life am I, you know, sanctioning, right? It's sanction of the victim. When, you know, and maybe it would, it would kind of bolster people's own confidence so that they would not fall prey to the problem of sanction of the victim themselves. So it could be as much for the participant, for them to think about the value that they provide through their own independent thought as much as it mm-hmm. is about educating other people. I'm liking the idea of this more and more. So, um, yeah, I, we, we can definitely think on it more. Um, in terms of, you know, an actual type of strike a la Atlas Shrugged where business, you know, business owners actually close their businesses down. And sometimes, you know, when a government has gone after a particular business, a lot of us who are fans of Atlas Shrugged have thought, oh, I just want them to close their business down. You know, um, I think they were going to do antitrust against Microsoft. And I remember thinking, oh, yeah, wouldn't it be funny if, you know, yeah, they're going after, you know, Microsoft for antitrust. And like on the day that there was an adverse ruling that they were going to make Microsoft, you know, do things, Microsoft had programmed their software on every computer around the world, but maybe just the government computers, I don't know, where it just shut down and said, okay, you're Mm -hmm. using force against us. We don't operate. So we, you know, a lot of us who are fans of Atlas Shrugged have had these kind of shrug fantasies about we know Bill Gates now would never do this, but it wouldn't have been cool, you know, when government's going after him for, uh, for antitrust, that he could shrug in a really creative way that only a software programmer could, to, you know, could do. Awesome. Yeah, but, that would be cool. That would have an impact, even like, because it would be one, it's one company that's so integral to everyone's um, just daily functioning. And yes. I, I mean, I remember one day when I was working in my internship, the compu- the power was out um, or partially out or something. We couldn't use our computers. And everybody was standing around confused, like no one knew what to do <laughs> because we couldn't use our computers. And um, some people just sort of gave up and went out to get coffee. And it was just hilarious because there's just all these engineers standing around and we just couldn't work. We didn't have our computers. And that was just, that shut us right down. So it would definitely have a big impact. No, I I mean, it definitely would, but we haven't seen any of these tech leaders maybe pushed up against the wall enough to do it. But I think the only one who was 
even close to being pushed up against the wall enough to do it was Microsoft. Apple's come close though, right? They have done some nasty things to Apple and mm-hmm. um, you know, in, in I've so far what they've just been doing is directly fighting it. So for example, I love the fact that Apple has fought for its ability to encrypt the phones and to withhold the key to, you know, encryption from the government. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a little bit within it in connection with this vault seven stuff. Um, one more thing on this issue of, of shrugging though, there's a, an old case that was brought to my attention by a listener, Daniel Henry, and it is covered in this Duke Law Journal article that I have a link to. It's a PDF that I have a link to at the blog at don'tletitgo.com. It concerned this company called Darlington Manufacturing Company. And you're familiar with the whole issue of the National Labor Relations Act and, and what power it gave to unions over employers, right? Um, I don't know the specifics of that act, but I know that in general there have been laws passed that make, re- require um, require that employers negotiate with unions and and right. like they're they can't they can't like shut out unions if someone wants to form a union and and, and all those things. But I'd, I'd love to know what the specific is about this one. Exactly, exactly. And so what what the National Labor Relations Act did is it put the government gun behind unions and forced employers to deal with unions in ways that they would not have chosen to had they been left free, right? So maybe they have to employ them. They can't shut them out. They're not allowed to employ non-union. In certain cases, they can, unions can come in and get a union shop declared where everybody who works at that place has to unionize. So one thing you might think, is if you were a company owner and your company was being strong-armed into becoming a union shop because of the NLRA, the government's behind it everything, you might think, well, what do you want to do? You want to shrug. You want to close down. You want to just shut up the shop, right? Um, mm-hmm. appar- apparently, there is at least, according to some courts and the National Labor Relations Board, there's not an unequivocal right just to close down your company. Can you believe that? What does that mean? Like, so you so, go to jail if you shut your company or what? Well, in, in this particular little article, which is a write-up of this case involving <clears throat> the Darlington Manufacturing Company, the National Labor Relations Board actually forced the owners of the company to give back pay to the employees who were left without a job, including those employees who were trying to undermine the shop by forcing them to have a union, right? Imagine mm-hmm. you, you can't just close your business and choose not to employ anybody anymore. You can't even do that. There is no absolute right to close down your shop. Uh, it says, uh, formulating an unprecedented remedy, the board ordered the assessment of back pay against these employees, uh, the, the employers until the employees obtain substantially equivalent employment. And then wow. one, yeah, one of the guys who still, uh, he still owns some other mills, businesses. 
he was ordered to offer reinstatement at other mills to the extent that such positions were available. Why? So that those could be unionized by the same jerks? Yeah. Awesome. Um, In reply to the contention, this is an employer's contention, that regardless of motive, there is an absolute right to go out of business, the National Labor Relations Board answered that, quote, Congress has taken from the employers the right to discharge employees for engaging in protected activities. The withdrawal of the right is absolute and unequivocal. And then this article goes on to say that the federal courts, they give employers a little bit more leeway because, of course, having a union shop is an economic consideration. It's not just a, quote, political thing. But if the court sniffs out the idea that the reason you're closing down is because you have animus against unions oh you mean because they're affecting your economic interests uh you know don't don't go for right don't go too far down the chain of logic there right but if they if they get this sense that the reason that you're closing is because you think unions are evil or at least being forced to deal with a union is an evil thing which it is if that if that's Mm -hmm. why you're closing down then no you're going to have some penalty uh placed upon you So what does this show you? It shows you that the scenarios that were depicted in Atlas Shrugged are ones for which the legal system in the United States is trying to provide a remedy for the employees that you would fire if you did that. So here you are, you know, suppose you're thinking of starting a business in the United States and you think, Okay, uh, Trump, you know, he kind of goes by whim. I don't know. Things are looking potentially a little bit better under Trump. The stock market is up, you know, based on the fact that Trump is promising all this stuff. The stock market is up. We'll see if he actually delivers. We'll see what happens to the stock market if he doesn't. But suppose you think, okay, it's, it's a more optimistic business climate. Maybe I'll start a business. And then you think, well, if things ever get bad again, I can just close my business down. What this article and the cases that it talks about in there is telling you is that there may be some consequences visited upon you, even if you decide to close your business. So if you do decide to do such a thing, you'll have to have a real elaborate plan how, you know, that you're going to evade all of the penalties that the government would impose upon you for closing your business. You are a slave. If you decide to open a business in this country, you are thereby a slave of the employees that you might choose to hire. Isn't that sad? Yeah. Now, is this just in relation to in the context of unions, if the employees are unionized, or is it at any business? I mean, not that it, not that it makes it okay if it's only in unionized cases, but I'm just curious. Um, well, the, whether, the National Labor and, Relations Board is only going to come after you if it involves something to do with unions. So, I mean, the typical scenario, and, and it's not even going to come up unless it's an issue of unions, right? Because what what happens in a normal, well, I mean, it could happen in other situations too, right? There could be some sort of a, quote, unlawful discrimination lawsuit against a company. And a company might decide that instead of trying to fight and put up with this, it's maybe a very small business that they would just rather close down. So you could see a parallel mm-hmm. thing happening in other scenarios. But really, yeah. it's happening. it would happen in any situation where the law provides some way to 
have an employee force the employer to deal with him in a way that the employer wouldn't on his own accord, right? Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty crazy. You know what, that just makes me want to, like, if I were in that scenario, start thinking about something really radical like just disappearing, you know, like the way that the people did in Atlas Shrugged. It seems exactly. like, because what are they, you just wonder, like, how far would they take it? Are they going to hunt you down and, like, extradite you from some other country and bring you back and then do what, you know? I, I mean, I don't know. It's just, it's surreal, but it seems like that's the solution that leaves open. Either you continue to work on terms that are not your own or you disappear. Well, and, and to some extent, every person who is working in the country right now, whether as an employee or as an employer, every single person is working in some way that they haven't chosen to. There are laws mm-hmm. that affect, there, there's, there's laws that affect all of us. And yeah. those, yeah, so, so you know, the, right now it's a relatively small impact and we've decided, okay, we're shouldering that burden. We'll find a way to shoulder the burden. Some people are shouldering it more than others, depending on what type of job they have and what type of industry. But everyone is shouldering these types of burdens. And it, when it gets really extreme, then you think, yeah, I've got to have that escape plan. And you know, you really apparently have to have a good one. Ideally, what you would want to do if it's one of these unionization situations is you would want to close up shop and you'd want to give some type of severance pay to the employees whom you did value, right? Mm-hmm. And then get out of Dodge, right? Yeah. And another big complication is if any company that's uh, got equity you know, investors own equity in it in the case of a startup maybe or a publicly traded company. If your stock were to crash or your investors were to lose their money, then there could be moral implications, I think, to that too. And so it seems like it would be a very difficult situation. Um, And I guess it's one of those things where once someone's rights are violated, when, when you run into an impossible situation, then at the root, it means someone's rights are being violated. It just sort of becomes there's no good choice. But um, I think that especially a, a big publicly traded company for, for it to just right. shut down. I mean, you know, the, uh, the way like, that the, I was going to say the way it worked out in Atlas, of course, uh, first of all, you have this world <clears throat> genius who figures out the perfect plan to, for everything to happen perfectly. And people who are, you know, deserving to get paid, they get paid. Um, the ones who are the investors in the company where the, when the stock crashes are all of the cronies who themselves were promoting the very types of measures that made the closing of the business necessary, right? So all of it mm-hmm. is, works out. In, in fiction, it all works out perfectly. Yeah, in, life, exactly. in, in life, it's a lot messier, which is why I'm thinking about this idea of a day, right? In, in, you know, in an extreme situation, of course, I would support and fight for an employer's right to shut his business down, even today yeah. where you think, okay, maybe it's not time, but there are some people, you know, and, and uh, people in the chat room are bringing up the idea, it's not just employers, it's also, you know, the bakers who are forced to bake the cake by government, that's ridiculous too. Um, yeah. But, you know, go, going back to this idea of a day, there is a person who's newer here in the chat room. 
Kogitabo. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, and you can tell me if if I am. Um, He says, it's not about a single day for me. It is about educating people over a lifetime. I agree with that, but then I also agree with Freedom Breeze there. If you have a day, a particular day, where you're calling attention to an issue, that can be a spark that ignites other potential thinkers to think about this issue over a lifetime. And even again, you know, you've got Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin knew that it was important for him to think about the practice of certain virtues deliberately over the whole course of his life. But what did he do in order to affect that? He decided that on particular, I can't remember again, if it's weeks or months or whatever, I think it was week by week that he would say, okay, well, on this week, I'm going to focus on the practice of this particular virtue and just make a mental note on a daily basis of how well I'm practicing this virtue, make little notes in a journal or whatever. Uh, He made little dots or something to talk about, you know, when he practiced it or didn't. And that calls your attention to it. So how is it that you affect this focusing on an issue over a lifetime. Sometimes you do it by explicitly calling attention to that issue on a day, paying particular focus. You know, if you're going to honor your mother on Mother's Day, I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, you know, yeah, you want to be kind to your mother all year round. You don't want to treat her like garbage. Yeah. And then right, yeah. on Mother's Day, you're going to yeah. be nice. But having a special day just to focus and kind of bring you back, um, you know, there's periodically on this show, I bring myself back explicitly to the theme of don't let it go. Don't let the American sense of life go. And I explicitly go through all of the elements of sense of life. And I make myself and I make all you guys, I drag you along with me, make you think about all of the aspects of the American sense of life. And then we kind of go forward and we do news and we don't explicitly talk about it again for a while. I do it. I haven't done it in uh, on a set schedule i've kind of done it whenever i felt like it was necessary but i could see you know calling your attention to something quarterly or calling your attention to something weekly you know depending on what it is right Mhm. yeah and it's interesting that you bring that up because um in terms of people who achieve mastery in different areas one of the things that is essential to that is focused practice so yes. it's not just um, the, the, the scientist Anders Ericsson who whose research is responsible for the 10,000-hour rule. Right, um, right. It, what he talks about, though, is that it's not just a matter of 10,000 hours of doing something by rote, but rather during those times you're doing a very focused practice and maybe focusing in on one component of your technique uh, or whatever it is that you're trying to master with, um, with guidance and feedback. And um, that that's the way to really master a thing is to focus on specific aspects of it at different times. So um, that's right. quite consistent with what you're saying about having those particular days. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm going to still percolate on this idea and Debbie, I thank you for helping percolate it with me. Anything else before I let hey, you welcome. go? Uh, no, uh, that's all. Thanks for talking to me. Okay. Well, happy International Women's Day, and I'm glad that there's another woman. I know there's many of us who take it in the proper spirit, and we'll talk soon. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Take care. Talk to you later. Okay. 
So going back over to the blog at don'tletitgo.com, let me talk about some of the things that have been going on in the world that make you think that it is time to call for day without the mind in some form. Again, as I said, we're percolating the idea. It's in process out here. Uh, You don't necessarily want to do the full-on strike, but maybe there's a day that we can do that can be effective both for the participants and for our audience. A few things. Spotify. Let me just tell you quickly. I've been a member of Spotify, which is just a music streaming service. Here is a way not to manage your business. Here is the way not to implement a business decision. What they did is Spotify had this messaging feature. And with their messaging feature, you could send people on Spotify, other people on Spotify, particular songs. So you send a song to a friend, maybe with a little comment about, you know, hey, listen to this, and I really like this about it, or whatever. Or you could just send it as a little missive, you know, to somebody. And and it was a really cute feature, right? So people would send songs back and forth to each other. And I was, I had some of this where I had a couple friends that I was sending stuff back and forth to. And, you know, you would want to those records, right? You know, and in part, maybe it's a lot of cool music and you think you're going to make a playlist out of it or whatever. So Spotify decided they did some sort of research. And I guess a lot of people were not using this feature in part. It's because it was poorly designed user interface wise, but that's a whole nother story. Um, But suppose it's valid. Suppose you have a business decision you're going to make. You're going to get rid of this messaging feature. How would you do it? If you are a rational business person who cared about your customers, you send a notification out and you say, in two weeks, we're going to get rid of this messaging feature. If you would like to retain the information that's in your messages, we suggest you download it. You might even give them a little way to download the messages or something, but just let people know in two weeks, this is going away. So if there's any information in there that's valuable to you, go ahead and pull it out now. You know, we're sorry we're getting rid of this feature or whatever, but we have to do it. It's a business decision. Okay, fine. They just got rid of it one day. That's what Spotify did. They got rid of it. And if you click the link that I have at my blog at don'tletitgo.com, it says Spotify messed up, you will see, I don't know how many pages they're on now, but they were on 54 pages of consumer complaints because they just got rid of this thing without notice. The software updated and boom, the inbox was gone. Nobody could find their messages. There happens to be a way right now to retrieve the data. And I did figure that out. So if anybody had that problem, you can message me on Facebook and I can tell you how to do it. Um, But the only way I was able to figure that out was through the kindness of a fellow user who posted within all of the complaints a link to a place that you can actually find this information. But Spotify itself has not told people. And what have they done? If you, Spotify, if you complain about this, they say, well, direct message us and we will make you a playlist out of the stuff that people have messaged you. What does that mean? You're giving Spotify permission to go into those messages, which any user would think it's private, that they're not going to go in there and they're going to dig in. It's completely wrong. They did it entirely wrong way. Don't be like Spotify when you are running your business, especially a social networking type business. If you want to get rid of a messaging feature, give people some notice first. Just that. 
Uh, now, what about Obamacare Light? What about Obamacare Light? Uh, we know that a couple days ago in the evening, the Republicans went ahead and published their alternative replacement plan for Obamacare. And if you actually go to the link that I've posted at the blog, don'tletitgo.com, the headline is how the House Republicans proposed Obamacare replacement compares, then you can actually see the replacement between the two. So there is no longer under the new Republican plan an individual mandate, but instead what there is is a 30% surcharge Companies are allowed to charge up to 30% on premiums if a consumer purchased a new plan after letting their previous coverage lapse. This is to encourage people to remain insured and probably also to let companies recover some of the cost because some people are going to try to get themselves, quote, insured only after they have some horrible pre-existing condition. You know, there's been a lot of memes going around on social media about you know people wanting to buy house insurance after their house is already burned down. There is no difference between what the government is mandating for these health insurance companies and that same type of scenario that everyone's, quote, laughing about. Yeah, you cannot call an insurance company and get your house insured after the house is burned down. But somehow in healthcare, everything is different because healthcare is essential. Well, isn't a home essential? It's only a matter of time, right? Uh, there is no employer mandate anymore on larger companies to offer affordable coverage. Okay, so that mandate is gone. But again, what is in the 30% surcharge? How is coverage going to be paid for? Uh, there are no, they're not going to be income-based premium subsidies. Uh, instead, they're going to be age and income-based refundable tax credits. And they talk about all the different tax credits, what it's going to be. But, of course, tax credit means that there's taxable income that you have, which means that you're making above, right? And there's a lot of people who don't even pay taxes now. So tax credits depend on people actually making money. So is that going to work? Um, out, insurers can charge older customers up to three times what they charge the younger customers. In, insurers can charge older customers five times what it is. So I guess somehow that's going to make a big difference. Um, health savings accounts. It used to be that you can contribute up to 3,400 and families up to 6,750 for health savings accounts. Now they've essentially doubled that, you know, that you can contribute more to health savings account. Uh, no longer cost sharing subsidies that will provide uh, be provided to insurers to help the ACA customers cover deductibles, et cetera. What's in, listen to this, states would receive $100 billion over 10 years through a new patient and state stability fund for safety net needs and possible, quote, high-risk pools for consumers. <sighs> Proposed changes to Medicaid, how it's going to address Medicaid out. They say Medicaid as an entitlement program with open-ending matching federal funds for anyone who qualifies. What's in instead is Medicaid would be funded by giving states a per capita amount based on how much each state was spending for the fiscal year that ended in September. So 
basically what they're doing is they're saying, okay, Medicaid expansion, they're not going to pay at a federal level for it to expand indefinitely. Instead, there's going to be this per capita amount, which will allow it to continue. I guess those states that participated in the Medicaid expansion are going to be rewarded by getting their per capita amount because they went ahead and and bought into the Medicaid expansion. So Kasich is very happy right now that at least under the repeal replace that he's going to be rewarded for getting more people in his state of Ohio on to single payer. How the Medicaid expansion is affected, 31 states have broadened their Medicaid programs to cover people making up to 138% of poverty level income. Those states would continue to get enhanced federal funding until 2020. After that, the government's going to keep paying 90% for beneficiaries already on the rolls as long as they remain eligible. After 2020, new beneficiaries would be funded at a lower level. So the Medicaid expansion continues under this replacement plan. Okay, so you get the idea, right? Uh, there's still going to be a mandate about pre-existing conditions. Parents can you know, keep the kids on until 26, regardless of what the insurance companies want to do. Uh, no caps on annual or lifetime coverage. Those are still banned. Um, insurers have to cover certain categories of specified benefits, et cetera, that's still in. Planned Parenthood is going to have a one-year funding freeze. Okay. I mean, Planned Parenthood, right? I don't think government should necessarily have to pay for abortions or any other medical procedure, but given that government is such a huge funder of medical procedures anyway, it is important whether abortion is included in that list, right? In a rational world, I would never force anybody to pay for anybody else's abortion, right? But in this world right now, in the context where so much of our medical procedures are being paid for for by government, to have government make medical care so prohibitively expensive and then not cover abortion, I think is discriminatory. So I'm not actually behind this, even though normally I would be for freedom of association and say, hey, you know, nobody should be forced to subsidize Planned Parenthood. That's ridiculous. Nobody should be forced to do that. In today's context, when you say, okay, well, you know, we're going to pay for everything else and not that, it then ends up becoming discrimination. So there is that to think about. Yeah, over in the chat room, they're talking about Trump's economic illiteracy. I'm sure that that's part of what's played a role here. How in the world, I I want to see this scored for cost, among other things. Um, What did I say over at the Don't Let It Go Unheard page, I observe that here we have now, right, we have the GOP, this is Paul Ryan's GOP, coming down on the side of forcing insurance companies, right, forcing insurance companies to deal with customers on terms which they do not agree to, right? That's what they're actually doing right now. That's what they are forcing the insurance companies to do. Um, so what is that 
actually mean in practice. They're, they're in favor of using force. That's what the GOP is saying. We are now also in favor of using force to ensure that everybody has, quote unquote, access to so-called health insurance. Both parties are in favor of this. That's the official thing that we learned, thanks to Paul Ryan this week. And so the thing that I facetiously asked is, should I just go ahead and register libertarian now? Not asking for me, asking for a friend, of course, not for me. Um, but now that both of the parties are indistinguishable with respect to forcing participation in the industry, the only way that they think they're getting away with this, right, is that they're not forcing the individual voter, the consumer. They're only forcing the companies to behave in certain ways, not the individual consumer. So they think they can get away with this. They are still in favor of force, and they are still destroying Healthcare, they're still going to destroy the quality of healthcare for everyone. So that was today's question. Uh, my little acronym for GOP, or you know how I spell out the acronym instead of Grand Old Party, is what they called it, right? Gang of parasites. Gang of parasites, because they are still perpetuating this redistribution of wealth, which is Obamacare. The title Obamacare light is not a smear. I mean, it's, it, that's really what this is. This is Obamacare light. Uh, let me go back to the blog at don'tletitgo.com because I found an article today which is the latest on the Republicans having to try to sell this, right? The GOP is actually trying to sell Obamacare light to its party because, I mean, you know, they've got the majority, Right? They have a majority in both houses. They've got a Republican president, and there's a real concern over whether they can actually pass this because there has been a backlash. Rand Paul has been spectacular on it. You know, one thing I'm wondering, and I've asked this out there on social media as well, does Ted Cruz, right, does Ted Cruz now regret not squarely addressing the issue of whether health care is a right. If you recall, I, gave, I did a discussion about that debate that he had with Bernie Sanders, and I actually posted out there sort of the money quotes from the debate because Sanders, an hour into it, forced Cruz to confront directly the question of whether health care is a right, and Cruz really skirted the issue. He spoke in terms of access and this and that. And he said some things that were right, but he never squarely rejected the idea of health care as a right. And now what do we have? We have Obamacare light. Obamacare light is making sure that no one's, quote, left behind from access to, quote, health insurance. Again, it is not health insurance if there is mandated coverage for particular conditions and stuff, which is still in there. Latest headline from Washington Post, GOP healthcare plan, White House vows full court press on behalf of proposal. And Paul, Paul Ryan um, was saying, you know, that, oh, it's, everything's fine, right? He said, so listen to Paul Ryan talk about this Obamacare light plan. I gave you the details, right, how it's still very similar to Obamacare, how it still perpetuates the Medicaid expansion. It's still helping all of these people get into a single-payer socialized medicine system, a.k.a. Medicaid. The Republicans are doing this. Here's Paul Ryan, quote, he says, this is the covenant we made with the American people when we ran on repeal and replace plan in 2016. 
continuing, he says, I have no doubt we'll pass this because we're going to keep our promises. Now, when he was promising, did you think that they were going to have Obamacare light to this extent? Now, I'm, some of you guys are saying yes. I'm pretty sure Craig in the chat room is going to tell me, yeah, that's exactly what I thought. But I'm betting that there are a number of people who are surprised at this so-called GOP plan that is being foisted out there on, on people. And Oh, yeah, you're just just supposed to toe the party line and, and vote for this garbage. Please don't. Any Republicans who have a spine, as I said, gang of parasites is what I'm calling you until I see different. That's what it is. Um, what else did I want to point you guys to? Oh, I, I do have that little review of, of that debate. I've got the link to that in the program notes at don'tletitgo.com. So that was one of the things, right? This, this, that the Republicans are no better than the Democrats, that they have become the gang of parasites as opposed to the grand old party. There's no whitewashing these guys, at least the guys who seem to be at the top of the party, Ryan and his buddies. How they can, with a straight face, think that Republicans, all conservatives and stuff, should just fall in line and promote this. I had somebody tweet to me, oh, do you expect them to undo it all in one day? I, what I would expect is a clean repeal with only one proviso that maybe you're going to do a phase out with respect to certain things. There's going to be some sort of phase out time period that's going to be short, like a year or something, because it is immoral Obamacare is in an immoral system. It initiates force against peaceful people to make them pay for their neighbor's health care. It initiates force against insurance companies and says you cannot offer true insurance anymore. What you have to do is offer these prepaid so to, you know, so-called health care vouchers, et cetera. It is an immoral. I've talked about it so much on the show. It's immoral. If you have the opportunity, you've got the House, you've got the Senate, you've got the presidency. If you truly believe in smaller government and free markets, you talk about free markets. If you truly believe in them, you need to repeal this entirely. If you truly try to say, well, look, we never voted for Obamacare, well, then repeal it. You have passed a straight repeal bill a number of times, but I guess you were protected by the fact that you knew that Obama wouldn't sign it. And now you're revealing your true colors, and I'm disgusted. GOP, I'm disgusted. So, yeah. Um, gang of parasites until I see differently. Now, I'm going to go on to the next story, and you'll see that you're listening to one of the few shows in which not only will you have a woman on Day Without a Woman Day coming here with a cold, working hard, uh, I'm going to be the only show that is going to criticize the Republicans for trying to even put out there with a straight face this Obamacare-like garbage, because what they need to do is they need to get government out of the healthcare industry entirely, and they need to make a serious step in that direction, which this is not. The second thing I'm going to do is I'm going to seem sort of like a liberal, and I'm going to come down on behalf of Edward Snowden and WikiLeaks. In fact, I actually ordered a T-shirt from WikiLeaks. I finally did it after hearing about this. Vault 7. What is the essence of Vault 7? You can look at all the different tweets and stuff that I've got from Edward Snowden and stuff. But the essence of Vault 7 is that the CIA has helped 
and known about how to use our everyday devices like our iPhones and other types of smartphones, iPads, other types of tablets, computers, etc., how to use them. Oh, and of course, the smart TVs. Everyone's talking about the smart TVs because the smart TVs are most like what you hear about in 1984, right, the, the book. They're using these as recording devices. And Snowden talks about the fact that, in effect, our government itself has helped to develop vulnerabilities in U.S. products and then intentionally keeps those holes open. So they keep you vulnerable, of course, to them because they want to always have their, quote, back door. But at the same time, they're leaving you vulnerable to other people. And I've spoken about my speculations about this back when they had the whole Sony thing. Remember the Sony hacking? And I was talking about imagine if government itself wants us to be vulnerable to hackers. Why? So that they can get into it. And that's exactly what they want. Snowden also tweeted about a Washington Post op-ed. I guess it was published back in 2014. Compromise needed on smartphone encryption. You know, the government wants Apple and other people to, quote, compromise on smartphone encryption. And I just want to come out briefly again. I've done this before. I believe you have every right to have a completely encrypted device that cannot be opened by Apple or whatever other company made it, that the only way it can be opened is through a key of your own choosing. So in, in I believe morally it is right for you to have a smartphone that is the equivalent of your house right? You've got your house and you've, you're the only one with the key to your house. You should be able to have that in your phone. As the Supreme Court itself has observed in cases, there is more personal information contained in our smartphones than if somebody was to search our entire house. If the government has to come to you with a search warrant for your house and you have to let them in, it should be the same, or it should at least be possible for it to be same for your device. It is perfectly moral for Apple to, in, uh, to offer to us an encrypted device that they cannot get into. It's great business practice, of course, because I don't want people at Apple snooping around in my phone either, right? You want it to be as private as possible. If Apple can make this possible via technology, it is, it is perfectly moral for you to have it. Since when should the government be able to be lazy and go to the company to get the information about you as opposed to come to you directly with a valid warrant based on probable cause and particular suspicion? Garbage otherwise. So CIA, you know, I was joking before the show. I hope the CIA likes Muse because I have my little Muse dance party before the show, get myself, you know, energized and psyched up and everything. I hope they like Muse because you're going to be hearing a lot of Muse CIA people. Um, okay, that's fault seven. Uh, the whole wiretap thing, Trump, it's totally believable that Trump was being tapped. Certainly Trump was being tapped. Look at vault seven. How about that? That's a pretty quick handling of that issue. Uh, if you want to know more about you know, you're new to the show or whatever, you haven't heard me before. I wrote a dissertation on the right to privacy. I've got a whole bunch of stuff out there on the right to privacy. I actually talk about how you could legalize privacy. That's the term that I use, how you could legalize privacy. And the places to look for my views on that, I've got a couple really good sources in the program notes. 
at the blog at don'tletitgo.com. I've got a written article called Don't Tread on My Metadata in which I talk about what I think would be legally required to actually protect our right to privacy in today's context with a highly technological society where we are sharing information with Apple and Facebook and everybody else. That's how we live our lives now. Facebook has more personal information about us than you could find by walking around our house, I bet. Then Heroes and Dogmatists is a show in which I defend Edward Snowden as a hero. And I also talk about what he's done in the context of my whole plan for how you could legalize privacy in today's world. So you could check that out. Um, we only have a few minutes left. So what I should do is talk to you about the rest of the links. I'm not going to be able to get do justice with them as much as I'd like. I thank you guys for participating over in the chat room. And I'm sorry I haven't been in there as much as I could today. I do have quite a bit on these program notes. Uh, I've got a little bit on the Middlebury case and, you know, the whole idea of people being physically attacked for expressing a viewpoint on a college campus is unbelievable. And the fact that in some cases on some campuses around the country, there is not even a penalty for initiation of force for the students who have done it at events like, for instance, the UCLA event where somebody came up and just actually shoved a whole bunch of books off of a table. Um, that's, a, you know, a physical act, right? Um, that's trespass to chattels in our old lawyer speak. There should be consequences for students who initiate force against others in these contexts. Freedom of speech needs to be protected in our society. Uh, there's an article about... Uh, Marine Le Pen, who's been stripped of immunity, legal immunity, because she has tweeted about some of the horrible atrocities committed by ISIS. Apparently, it is not protected speech. Not even if you're Marine Le Pen, to you can't even have immunity anymore uh, for expressing an opinion about ISIS killings how horrible and unjust and what horrible atrocities that they commit. Freedom of speech is under assault in our country. And this is another reason why you might want to have a day without the mind and call attention to the issue of, of the mind. If we do not have free speech, we do not have free thought. Uh, I have an article about the truth about Sweden. It talks about the plight of women in Sweden and there is some debate about whether the discussion of how bad it is in Sweden, it's really based on facts or not. And everybody's got, it's hard to get to the bottom of the issue. You know, there's redefinitions of what constitutes violence against women in some places. And so therefore when you work with the new definition, which is broader then there's more reporting, but is it really about more instances of violence or is it because you've changed the definition of what violence against women is considered to be. Uh, then there's people with their agendas, right? There's the anti-immigrant agenda, but then on the other hand, there's other people who don't take violence against women committed by Muslims seriously enough and try to figure out, you know, some way within, you know, consistent with the principle of individual rights 
that we can avoid bringing into our country people who think it's perfectly okay to physically assault women who aren't wearing the proper covering or whatever it is that they're doing that supposedly justifies the attacks against them. Uh, so check that out. But in general, the the debate over this kind of story, because I, I posted this article, The Truth About Sweden, that I have in the program notes. I posted it on social media, and there was this huge debate back and forth about people were saying, well, was it the content of it true or not? There seems to be a huge need for objective, just truly objective news reporting. Some people are saying that the situation is worse than it used to be. Some people are saying, no, it's not. Uh, some people are pointing to particular journalists you can trust, and then other people are saying, no, they're not so trustworthy. If there was a proven, truly objective news source, I'm thinking there would be a lot of people who would flock to it. It's a tremendous business opportunity. So just putting that out there. Uh, Berkeley removes 20,000 free online videos to comply with insane Department of Justice ruling. In essence, people with disabilities, certain disabilities, who need closed captions on the videos were not able to access them. And so because all of these free videos, all this education that you could be getting for free violated the American with Disabilities Act, they went ahead and took that out there. I can't even do justice to exhaustion of American liberalism. You have to read it for yourself. I wanted to say a couple things. There's a Dear Daddy video there. And that video addresses the very serious issue of how in some male cultures, and it's not just Islamic, there's people who use casually derogatory words and phrases against women and how that can implant in a man's mind the idea that it is okay to physically assault a woman. And so that you should, as a man, take a moment to think about the types of language that you use about women. That's the kind of thing we could talk about today legitimately and that's what I just did. Uh, May spray, which I use as a theme for the show, right? The, the introductory music to the show also has a message, a pro-woman message there and an anti-violence against women message. What do you think May spray is about? Finally, I give you something inspiring, positive from the Ayn Rand bot. Ayn Rand, a woman who was, I believe, very extremely heroic and, and whose ideas deserve to be spread. She said, the most important thing in life is never to surrender one's concept of what is right, what life could be and should be. And with that, I leave you. Thank you for listening. And I'll talk to you guys next week. Take care.